Well, again, welcome to each of you. It is good for us to be together this morning, and uh, I appreciate what Brother Dan shared about this week after Easter. Um, I hope this week was different for you. Uh, again, we come through last weekend and the wonder of the resurrection and how wonderful it is to believe in our heart that Jesus is risen. It changes everything. Uh, for as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, without the hope of the resurrection, our faith is in vain. I have been doing a series uh, the last couple weeks of biblical interpretation and application. And I want to continue that, especially next month, but I want to give an invitation to you as a congregation. Um, if there are specific areas special practical areas of your Christian experience that are troubling for you, are confusing for you, um, are difficult for you that you would like for me to address. Um, you can share them anonymously. Just put something in my box, put a subject. Um, there are several things, areas that I want us to look at together, but I would, I would invite you. There are some areas you would like for me to address. Um, there are so many different things we could. Um, I, I would invite you to, to share that with me, a topic that you would like for me to look at. But this morning, especially in light of the resurrection and what it was like for Jesus to encounter his disciples that week after, I invite you to open your Bible this morning to Mark chapter 8. Now, this passage did not happen post-resurrection. But we find in Mark 8, verses 27 to 38, Jesus issuing to his disciples and to those who followed him the challenge of discipleship. And I find in my life, in my spiritual pilgrimage, that I must always address, almost on a daily basis, how do I respond to the challenge of discipleship? Mark 8, I want to read verses 27 through 38. Mark 8, 27 through 38. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, 
Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what would profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Deep down in our being, God has wired all of us for a sense of mission. A sense of purpose. And while a challenge-free life might initially appear attractive, ultimately, unless we find and embrace our mission in life, we find life to be trite. We find life to be same old, same old. We find life to be lacking true meaning. We find it to be empty. When we look at the teaching of Jesus, have you found it to be this way as I have? That Jesus can be so kind and so gentle and so loving. And as we would say here in the South, so sweet. And then he can turn around and in a moment, he can, without apology, give a challenge that cuts to the very core of our being. It is so blunt, it is so unapologetic, it is so demanding, it is so bold, it is so in your face, it is so uncompromising, it is so all or nothing. And we find that in verse 34 in this passage. Whoever desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, that verse makes me wince whenever I read it. But if I am going to claim the name of Christian or Christ one, I have to reckon with that verse. And you, my brothers and sisters, have to as well. We have to reckon with that. It is so wonderful to believe in Jesus, in his death for us, and his resurrection. But it is much more demanding to follow him. You see, I would declare this morning that many are the believers and few are the followers. Every follower, by definition, is a believer but not every believer is a follower. And I find that in Mark's telling of the gospel message, his whole gospel message hinges on Mark 8, 34. I'm sure you've heard of the notable baseball great, Yankee catcher Yogi Berra, with his own philosophy. And he's 
noted for making the statement, when you come to the fork in the road, you want to finish that? Take it. That's what he always said. When you come to the fork in the road, take it. And Jesus lays out for his disciples and those who would listen to him, and I think is laid out very clearly for us, a fork in the road. And while we would like to take both of them, we can't. We can't take both. We either follow or we do not. So let's go back and walk through this passage together and, and try to understand the, the time, the setting, and what was going on. In verse 21, Jesus and his disciples are passing through Caesarea Philippi. Now, there was a time when this region had a much nicer name. This was Naphtali, or Naphtali, near the town of Dan. But when the Romans came and conquered, Caesar changed the name. This is no longer Naphtali. This is Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked an important question of his disciples that day. He says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples start rattling off just what you hear on the, they've heard on the streets. Well, some say John the Baptist, some say, you know, uh, one of the other prophets, perhaps Elijah. But then Jesus' second question in verse 29, is at a riskier level. See, there's no risk to the disciples to answer the question, who do people say that I am? But now it becomes personal. He says to them in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question that I invite you to join me in answering this morning. Who do we in our heart of hearts, not with our lips, who do we say that Jesus is? Well, it probably got quiet. I'm just surmising now what it might have been like. And disciples look at one another, and Peter probably raised his hand. I got this one, Lord. I mean, someone's got to take charge, right? I mean, someone. Okay, I will. And Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now that term in the Old Testament carried baggage. It carried weight. That wasn't just a, a complimentary term like you're the leader. Messiah or Christ spoke of salvation. Spoke of deliverance. Spoke of returning Israel to the glory days of King David. That's what Peter is saying. Well, in verse 31, Jesus starts to lay down the fork in the road. You see, up to this point, the disciples following this man that they declare, Peter says the Messiah, they have seen power. They have seen healing. They have seen success. They've seen deliverance from demon oppression. 
They have seen people raised to life. There's been success upon success upon success. But notice verse 31. Jesus speaks a different definition of Christ, of Messiah. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In verse 32, Mark records that Jesus began to speak this very openly, plainly, directly. This wasn't just a passing statement. Oh, by the way, no. He spoke candidly of these things to them. You know, it, it's a stupefying pronouncement that Jesus makes to his disciples that day. Because now Jesus is not talking about popularity and following. He's talking about vulnerability. He's talking about becoming what could appear to be a failure. And Jesus declares that all of this must happen. Which suggests that he is not a victim, but that there is a purpose in his being rejected and his being killed. There's a purpose in that. So, when we think of Jesus, as the disciples that day must have, suffering, rejection, death, is, is that the Messiah they wanted to follow? Or should they be looking for a different one? Do you see the fork in the road? Jesus lays it down very clearly that day in a way that they had not seen before. And now in verse 34, Jesus really doesn't soften the dilemma. He now doesn't just say what is going to happen to him, but he says, if you are going to follow me, You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And, and notice who this is for. This is not for a group of super saints. This is not for the elite 12 disciples. It says that when he had called the people to himself and his disciples also. This is for whoever would choose to follow him. This is for you and me. This morning, ordinary people living ordinary lives, facing ordinary challenges in 2023 in Southern Virginia. This is the call to us. If anyone, no exceptions, would come after me, Jesus says, here is what you must do. Now, let me remind you that Jesus is talking about a new life. He's not talking about a three-step process or some religious program that somehow we can better our life. He's talking about a new life, a different way of living. 
And underneath anything in the call of discipleship, we always have Jesus' words we find in Matthew 11 ringing out to us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden in heart, and I will give you rest. So, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, Christ in us, that is to be our life. And so this year, 2023, can be the greatest year for us in our spiritual growth that's ever happened. But it will only be when we embrace what does it mean for me to crucify myself daily and allow his life to live in me. So with this in mind, I would like for us to go back and look at verse 34. And I want to challenge this morning three myths that I think those who believe in Jesus can fall victim to that can be a stumbling block to them following Jesus. Now, we all know what a myth is, right? A myth has some truth, but it has a lot of puffiness about it. And we tend to gravitate toward the puffiness, the frosting on the cake, rather than the cake. So let's go back and look at verse 34. And I don't know if you mark in your Bible or not, but there are three things here that you should take note of. Three things that if you and I are going to declare ourselves to be a follower of Christ, this will characterize our life. The first myth that Jesus challenges those disciples, those people who are listening that day, and I think is a challenge to us today. He says, if any of you desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Jesus challenges the myth of comfort. Comfort. Now, at first glance, this doesn't sound healthy psychologically, does it? I mean, you would think Jesus would be saying, you need to affirm yourself. You need to care for yourself. Now, let me be clear this morning what this does not mean. To deny ourselves does not mean that we cannot enjoy the simple pleasures of life. A sunrise, a sunset, the sound of a bird, barbecued ribs, a glass of iced tea, the voice of a friend, the wonder in a child's face. This is why the Bible consistently declares that everything is created by God is good and nothing to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. You see, Jesus' call to discipleship is not a call to condemning us to a dreary life. A life without joy, a life without happiness. Actually, it's a call to us to deny something even much more basic and much more radical. He calls us to deny ourselves. The Bible calls it our old man or our flesh. It's that part within us that wants to rebel against what God says. 
the direction he would have us to go. Paul writes in Galatians 5.13, Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful desires of your flesh. You see, in other words, if you and I are honest, there is within each of us an insatiable or never satisfied desire for comfort. It's there. An appetite for pleasure and comfort. One of our most basic distorted desires of our flesh is this craving for comfort. And that comfort is not just in terms of our senses, but often it is even greater the comfort of affirmation of other people. You see, we can act like the most decent, respectable disciple until someone messes with our comfort and then look out. We see it all the time. When you mess with someone's comfort or their approval, now you're meddling. Most of us who are parents and those of you who have been around parenting and children can tell you about the reality called the terrible twos. When that whole world seems to revolve around a two-year-old and what their need is for comfort, for what they want. Well, most honest parents can also talk about not only the terrible twos, but the terrible teenage years. (laughs) The terrible young adult years, when a craving for a comfortable life with the affirmation of friends and peers grows deeper and stronger. Listen, I want to say to us this morning that there is within each of us a terrible two that is still there. That is still there. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny that terrible two. That terrible two-year-old within you. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, put off the old self which is corrupted and put on the new self. When Jesus says deny yourself, he's saying learn to be able to say no to yourself, to your flesh. Every time that flesh, that craving to indulge yourself and look out first and foremost for your own comfort, every time that raises its ugly head, deny it. Renounce it. You see, so we really need to be able to say to our flesh, since I met Jesus, since I'm following him, I'm not going there with you. I'm not going there with you. And if this sounds easy, it's not. I don't find it easy. And part of the reason it's not easy is because it's tricky work because the flesh inside of us is always there. It's there even in our best and most religious moments. It comes out in our fellowship with one another at times. It comes out in our our ministry sometimes. It comes out even when we are doing the right things. It's so easy for that terrible two within us to distort the why that we're doing things. And pride 
is such a revealing manifestation of the terrible two that resides within us. How do I detect the workings of my flesh? I think the key is being honest with ourselves. Being honest with ourselves. Answering the why questions honestly. Why is it that I choose to do this or not do this? Why is it that I choose to go there or not go there? Why is it that I choose to participate in this or not participate in this? Why is it that this is how I determine my relationship to church and other believers? If we can honestly, we'll honestly answer that question, it will faithfully reveal, is this of God and His Spirit? Or is this the terrible two-year-old within me? We each need to acknowledge the depth and persistence of our flesh. And that is why the Apostle Paul makes that statement that seems so radical. I die daily. Really, Paul? Paul says that as an old man. As one who was chosen as an apostle. Paul says, I choose to die daily to my flesh. I mean, I would have thought Paul had it. I thought it all worked out, right? No. Paul says, daily, I have to choose to do that. You see, every day you and I have opportunities to deny our inflated, wounded child flesh. To say no to seeking the approval of others and to say yes to seeking the approval of the Holy Spirit. So you see, Jesus says right up front, if you are going to be my disciple, if you're going to answer that two-word call, that he gave and still gives, follow me. If we're going to answer that, then our whole myth of comfort is going to be challenged because it's not going to be comfortable to our flesh, to what our body wants. Well, the second myth Jesus challenges is safety. Jesus says in verse 34, take up his cross. How do we take up our cross? Well, taking up our cross does not mean putting up with difficult people. Taking up our cross does not mean merely adding more suffering to our life by letting people victimize and abuse us. See, everyone in Jesus' day knew what taking up a cross meant. And while it at times ultimately referred to crucifixion, what a person taking up their cross meant was you were going to be ridiculed. You were going to be persecuted for your decision to identify with Christ. Verse 38, Jesus says, follow me, even if it means you will get into trouble, face the shame of people, or lose the esteem of men, even when you will be ridiculed and mocked. You see, Jesus challenges our myth of safety. And if you and I think about it and are really honest with ourselves, we look for safe places, don't we? We look for safe relationships. 
We, we look to be seen in certain places and not seen in other places. We look for the safety of being viewed a certain way. It's part of our sinful nature. And Jesus is challenging that myth of safety. The lie that life should be and must be as completely safe and risk-free as we can make it. That seduction that somehow... I want to follow Christ, so if I'm careful in, in how I do this, I can arrange my life in such a way that I can avoid criticism, ridicule. I can avoid not having approval of the people that are important in my life. I smile sometimes when I look at this generation, see, I'm one of the elderly ones now. You know, we have become so safety fanatical <laughs> in our day and time. We spend an enormous amount of energy killing germs, protecting children from any possible consequence of creative play. Now, listen, safety is a good thing. I get it. But listen to this. Jesus says... If you want to follow me, you might get hurt. That's what he says. If you want to follow me, you might get hurt. In fact, in Luke 21, Jesus goes so far as to say this. You will be betrayed by even parents and brothers, relatives and friends... And they will put some of you to death. In other words, you might get killed. Wait a minute. Jesus, are you saying that if I choose to follow you, that may not be safe because I might be betrayed? I might be attacked not only by enemies, but by those I thought had my back? I might be unfairly accused and criticized by family. I might be betrayed by parents or brothers or sisters. Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. And that's not a safe place most people are willing to go. Did you realize in the first 300 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, believers did not automatically assume that they would live and die of natural causes. Death for the sake of being a Christian was a very real possibility. I guess maybe something like we would say, well, I know what example I'd give, but maybe like, do you realize you might die of cancer? Or you, might die of a, or you might die in a car accident. I mean, it, it just very, it was very much a possibility. And we know around the world there are many people today that it's only a possibility. But in America, in Western civilization, we don't normally in, consider that. You see, for people in that day, it was, it was a matter of maybe we will have to die for our faith. Maybe that is what this will cost us. There was no guarantee or expectancy of safety. And to be honest, in our Western culture, 
too much of the body of Christ today, we so demand our rights. If we get ridiculed, we're ready to, well, let's write a letter to our legislator, you know? Or let's flex our political muscle or cultural muscle or let's, let's, we don't really know what it's like or really have embraced the possibility of being ridiculed, of being betrayed, of being falsely accused. Or in some cases, people turn down opportunities of Christian ministry because it's just not safe. I read this last week, and I thought about with what we're going to be doing this evening with the Soul Project. I read of a young man who was so impressed with the opportunity of serving in a mission assignment in one of those areas, but he watched a, a special on National Geographic that talked about this insect that is in this part of the world that he was looking seriously at going, answering a call to serve in a mission assignment, that this insect would burrow in under the skin and lay an egg, and then that egg would hatch into a larva, and, and it was very painful and extremely itchy, irritating. Could be very similar to this, what this soul project deals with. But based on that, he decided, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. To which I think Jesus would say, what did you expect discipleship would mean? Did I not say, take up your cross? Did I not say that there would be threats? I thought of Jared and Rolanda as I was preparing this. I just heard this last week that contrary to treaties that were signed years ago in 1998 or 1990s that bans mining, that the Russians have put out millions of mines they're finding now in the farmland in Ukraine. And farmers are trying to get back in their fields. Farmers have, in tractors, have been completely blown up and destroyed, killed. And they're saying someone's going to have to demine those fields before people can return. Well, that's dangerous. I'm not going there. I'm not. What does it mean to serve? You see, it's so easy for us to want to be a follower of Jesus if it can be comfortable and if it can be safe. I say, yes, practice safety. But then go and present the gospel in as winsome and kind and loving way as you can. And don't think that, being, that by being safe and nice that we can escape the cross. No, be prepared for it. At all times and in all places, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Well, the last myth I want to challenge is that of control. And this is Peter's problem in this passage. Look at verse 32 and 33. I mean, Peter thinks he's in control here. I mean, as I said, after all, someone has to be, and Jesus needs to line up behind him. You see, in the disciples' minds up to this point, it's appeared that, that, that Jesus is on a successful mission. But now, what is Jesus talking about? 
He seems to be having a personal crisis here. He's the Messiah, the Savior, but now he's talking weird ideas of being rejected and being persecuted and dying. I mean, someone's got to step up to the plate. And so once again, Peter says, I'll pinch it. And I just find it fascinating here. Verse 32 says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't know what that looks like to you, but Peter must have gone to him and put his arm around his shoulder and and took him away from the disciples. And he's talking to Jesus. Look, Master, you got this all wrong. You can't be talking like this. I, I, I mean... If you're going to be talking like this, we're, we're, going to, we're going to lose a following. The scripture says Peter rebuked him. That's the same Greek word that is used earlier in Mark when Mark says that Jesus rebuked the demons. In Peter's case, it has this air of, of protective superiority. Peter took him aside patronizingly lecturing Jesus. Look, Jesus, you've got to get a grip here on your ministry. This talk of rejection is not appropriate for a real Messiah. We're going to lose momentum here. Jesus had spoken plainly in verse 31, but now he's brutally blunt. Notice what he does in verse 33. He turns around from Peter and faces the disciples And this is what he says. Get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, line up behind me. You are the follower. I am the leader. Then he says, you do not have the mind of God. We would say, Peter, you need an attitude adjustment. So... One of the challenges you and I are always going to face in being a disciple is the the myth of control. We so want to control how I'm going to be a disciple. And to follow Christ means to surrender that control to Him. The essence of Christianity isn't and we've seen that together as a congregation these last months, isn't following a list of rules or being born in the right family. It all boils down to those first words Jesus gave to his disciples, and we find it repeated here. Follow me. You see, we talk a lot about believing in Jesus, and that is good. The problem is that believing can slip so easily into an intellectual Ascent. And Jesus' language is much more direct and radical than that. He says, follow me. If you follow me, of course you believe in me. But I say again, not every believer is a follower. Following Jesus is doing what Jesus says. Even when it's not comfortable. Even when it's not safe. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And so, I think it's important for us, again, this year, to consider what does that mean? 
And as we look at these various subjects we've been looking at with biblical interpretation and application, to basically ask ourselves the questions, if this is what God is saying, why am I not willing to do? Why do I find it within myself resisting? Is this what Jesus says about my finances? As we look the other Sunday. What is the terrible two within me that says, uh-uh, that's mine. If this is what Jesus says about observing a Sabbath. He gives me six days to work. What is it within me? What's the terrible two that wants to grab that other day and say, this is my vacation? You see, it's answering those questions honestly that helps us grapple with being a disciple. It's not enough just to say, I believe, and I want God's blessing in my life, and, and I really want to do what's right. The answer is, am I willing to surrender the control of my life to the Spirit and follow him daily. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that your call to discipleship is clear and that is to us today as well as it was to your disciples when you gave it. Father, help us to recognize the power of our flesh that two-year-old within us that wants comfort, that wants safety, that wants control. Father, may your spirit empower us. May he grant us understanding that we might choose to surrender comfort and safety and control that indeed we might be faithful followers of you. This we ask in the name of Jesus the Christ, our Messiah, our Savior and Lord.